1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God asked, God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honour, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realised that it had been a dream. We often use the term the golden age to describe a period when things were going well, when they've reached their highest point. Uh, Movie buffs talk about the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, That was when they had movies like Casablanca and Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz. That was the period of big movie studios and big movies. It was kind of the high point of that industry. It's probably never going to be like that again. Now, we start this morning looking at the book of 1 Kings, and as I said earlier, you need to brace yourself because there's a whole lot of weirdness that happens in here. Um, But having said that, in these opening chapters of 1 Kings, we're going to glimpse the golden age of Israel. And take care that you don't blink because you might miss it. It was just this tiny, tiny little point when things were at their very best. Things will never be better than they were at the early reign of King Solomon. The history of Israel is one of a whole bunch of ups and downs, but there's this little window at the beginning of Solomon's reign when we enter into this golden age of Israel, the times, the time when things were as good as they would ever be in Israel. But let's go back for a moment and make sure that we see where we're up to in this book of 1 Kings. Uh, Back to the book of 2 Samuel to make sure we understand the things that have taken place. In 2 Samuel, we find the story of King David. Uh, David was kind of considered to be the greatest of the kings of Israel and he ruled over this united kingdom. His predecessor, Saul, had been a bit of a disaster of a king. He'd left the whole nation completely fragmented. There was internal division and constant battles with the countries around them. David comes to the throne 
manages to unite the kingdom. But again, don't get your hopes up too high. The future was looking bright in Israel, but it's not going to work out that way even under David's reign. As it seems to be the case in the pages of the Old Testament, just when things look really good, something really bad happens. And David does just that, that whole thing with Bathsheba that you might remember. You know the story, David uh, takes another man's wife, she falls pregnant, pregnant, so David arranges for her husband to be killed in order to cover up his wrongdoings and bad behaviour. And 2 Samuel finishes with the kingdom still intact, but David looking like a pretty tarnished king at this particular point. I suppose it's pretty true today of leaders that uh, they may do great things, but we often remember them for their one colossal mistake. Uh, We hear Bill Clinton, and we can't help but hear the name Monica Lewinsky. Or we hear George Bush, and we think about that whole Iraq thing. But the remarkable thing is that God continues to be faithful to his people. One of the big promises that we see in the pages of the Old Testament is 2 Samuel chapter 7. As I said, this is before the incident with Bathsheba, but God promises that David will have a kingdom and a throne that will last forever and David's son will follow him as king and David's son will be the one who will build the temple. And in the book of 1 Kings, it opens with David looking, as I said, like a rather sad and pathetic figure. He's a frail old man, but he will have his son on the throne after him. Here's a kind of family tree. It was going to be touch and go as to who would be the next king, and there are others who want to make a bit of a claim for the throne. Here's a little bit of a a family tree for David. This is just a list of uh, his sons uh, who were potential uh, people who might think that they would be the one who would take the throne. And Adonijah would have been pretty high on that list. He was the oldest of David's sons at that particular point. But the box that I love is the one on the far end there that says 13 more. Uh, These are the sons that he had to a variety of different concubines. Uh, Things operated in a slightly different way back then. But one of the things that we hear repeatedly in uh, in Israel's history is, is that there's always someone ready to pounce on, their, on an opportunity. And that someone in this instance is Adonijah. He's the oldest of David's sons and he thinks that he ought to be taking the throne. Now, without consulting his father, he makes these plans for he himself to become the king. He gathers some loyal supporters, he arranges to be anointed as the king and starts to do all of the sorts of things that a king would do. Adonijah no doubt thought that he had some kind of claim to the throne, being the oldest son, but it won't be the oldest son who takes the throne. David will see that Solomon is appointed as king, as God has promised. And Adonijah's off proclaiming himself as a king, and David organises for Solomon's coronation to, be, to take place, to be, for him to be anointed as king. Nathan the prophet and Zadok the priest carry out David's wishes and and Solomon is appointed as king. Now on taking over, uh, David has some final advice for Solomon and and this is one of those high points in the story. If you've got your Bible there, 1 Kings chapter 2 
and find verse number two. This is David's, not quite his dying words, but his final words to, to his son Solomon. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong. Act like a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me, all, with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. The last thing Israel needs is a king who's in it for the prestige or the power. They need a king who's going to walk the way that God wants them to walk. If God's people are going to prosper, they need a godly leader. And David, more than anyone knows how important it is for a king to walk in the way that God wants. David saw both sides of kingship during his time. He knew what it was to be a godly and faithful leader, but he also knew the pain and sorrow of being an unfaithful leader. David knows which one he's, his son ought to choose, and Solomon needs to be strong. He needs to be determined that he will live faithfully in that relationship with God. Solomon takes the throne from his father David and his first act is to deal with his enemies, those who've tried to make that grab for power and may try to do that again. But he does this with both justice and compassion. And chapter 2 closes with these words, if you have a look at it there, uh, verse number 46. The kingdom was now established in Solomon's hands. All in all, you've got to say, Solomon gets off to a good start. The troublemakers in the kingdom are dealt with. Solomon has been firmly established as king. But the question remains, what kind of king will he be? And after firmly establishing himself as king, some of his actions are a little bit on the questionable side. I mean, like marrying Pharaoh's daughter, it seems to have been one of the first things that he did after taking the throne. Hardly a wise move when you consider the relationship that Israel's had with Egypt up to this point. And I'm pretty sure that, that God said that, they weren't, that his kings weren't to do that. But have a look at the end of chapter 4, verse 26. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. Now, that alone ought to ring another warning bell. God had specifically told his people way back in the book of Deuteronomy, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. That's not about the horses. It's about where you think your power comes from. Where is your strength found? Is it found in the number of horses that you have? Or is it found in the God who has put you on the throne? And they're not to measure it by, by the number of horses that they've got. Solomon, we're told, also uh, makes sacrifices in the high places, the places that were used for the worship of other God gods. While there may be political stability in the land, 
we've got a king who seems to be lacking a bit of discernment. Some of his actions are pretty questionable. But then comes Solomon's kind of shining moment in the story. Uh, when my kids were young, uh, they, they had a copy of the video Aladdin, you know, the story about Aladdin finding the lamp with the genie inside and the genie comes out and says, you can have three wishes, uh, whatever you want. What do you think you'd ask for if you were in that position? What sorts of things do you think would, would be top of your list if you can have anything that you want? Probably reveals a little bit about your character, doesn't it, when you think about the answer to that. And amazingly, Solomon was given this opportunity as well, but it's God who appears to him. Chapter 3, verse number 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. He'd been appointed as king. He could have anything that he wanted. Could have been money, could have been power, could have been a peaceful reign as king, could be a bigger kingdom, could be a packet of Tim Tams that never runs out. I mean, what would he ask for? What should he ask for? Well, have a look at it. Verse, verse 7 of chapter 3. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count and number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? That's it. I mean, that's the perfect answer, isn't it? He says, help me to rule well, to be wise and discerning in the decisions that I make. And God grants Solomon this request. He gives him wisdom and discernment in administering justice. And we see an example of it in that story. You know, the one, the two women come, uh, one child has died and the other child's still alive. Uh, how is Solomon going to decide who does this baby belong to? Didn't have any DNA testing or anything like that back then. So how's he going to handle this situation? Two women, one child, both claiming that it's theirs. Solomon says, here's the deal. Grab a sword, we'll cut him in half, and you can each have half. Now, he had no intention of cutting the child in half, but he knew that the real mother would never allow that to happen. The real mother would want her child to live. And Solomon was right. The real mother wouldn't allow that to happen. Chapter 4 closes with Solomon looking just like the king that Israel need. And we read that Solomon's wisdom had become renowned right throughout the whole world. In fact, people are coming from all over the world to hear the wisdom of this man. Yet you get to the end of chapter 4 and it looks like the nation's in a good place. It looks like they're moving into this golden age. But the position that Israel is in hasn't come about by good luck or good management. It's come about because God has continued to be faithful to the promises that he made. He was faithful to the promises that he made to David. But it goes way back before that. God made promises to Abraham. 
He promises him numerous descendants. He promises him a land that he'll be able to live in. He promises that, that he will bless his people. Promises about being used by God to bless the world. And that's what we read at the end of chapter 4. Have a look at it. Chapter 4, verse number 20. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sands on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They're as numerous as the sands on the seashore, exactly what God had promised them. And here's the closing words of chapter 4. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. The nations are even being blessed because Solomon's on the throne. They're coming to share in that wisdom, to hear what it is that he has to say. Roughly a thousand years before Solomon, God made these promises to Abraham. Promises about people as numerous as sand on the seashore. Promises about a land that they could live in. And promises about blessing and being a blessing to the world. And for the first time in the story of the Bible, it looks like it's happening. What God has promised is now happening. As we look through 1 Kings over the next few weeks, we'll see that, as always, God is totally faithful and trustworthy. He keeps his promises. But sadly, we'll also see that Israel seemed to have, have this situation where it's impossible for them to remain faithful to God. The golden age is very short. The faithfulness of Israel and Israel's king won't last for terribly long at all. But as with all of the books of the Old Testament, 1 Kings points us to the coming of the one true king over God's people. Not just the king of Israel, but the king who will rule over all nations. 1 Kings leaves us anticipating, leaves us hoping for the coming of Jesus. With all the books of the Old Testament, there's this frustration and emptiness you keep thinking that there has to be something better than this and there is because God's plan is not finished with Solomon the true golden age that God has in store for his people will be the one that is initiated when Jesus comes again when Jesus appears as king to rule and to judge over all with justice and compassion and God is faithful to his promises. His faithfulness is most clearly seen in his son Jesus, the one that we can call our king as we wait for him to come.